We all know that this is the annual Feast of Trumpets, and we all know that last year we met together, many of us here over in Mineola, in a similar meeting where we brought our food and we had a very marvelous time and we had a potluck, and one more year has gone by. Nothing is static in this world, nothing seems to stand still. I recently completed a little bit of uh, tournament play with some fellows who were called members of the Senior Golf Association of Texas, and I was dumbfounded at what some of those fellows were able to do. There was one guy out there on a golf cart who was carried around in an almost upright position on the back of a golf cart because he has some terrible affliction, some constriction of the esophagus, perhaps some cancer or I don't know all of the problems, to which literally he can neither lie down nor sit down. He has to spend his life on an automatic uh, kind of a recliner that he gets on and it lets him just go to a certain degree or another beyond which his simple body can't stand it. And here the fellow is out there playing golf, riding upright in the back of a golf cart. And he must be up in his 80s or so. There was another gentleman out there that I saw in the locker room with the horrible scars. He'd had the same kind of an operation my sister-in-law underwent, terrible arthritis, and both knee joints had been removed, and he had plastic in his knee joints, and he had these big athletic buckle kind of an elastic bands or supporters around both knees, and he was hobbling from place to place and out there with a golf club playing golf. I was asked to give a speech the other night, Wednesday night, to about 500 of them, that seemed to go over very well. I drew a few analogies about the game of golf and lessons in life and used the seven laws of success to kind of weave the two together. And as I was getting ready in the locker room to go in there, an elderly gentleman came up to me and asked me to pin the ribbon behind his neck because he couldn't reach it. He was 92, and he was out there playing golf. And he was called one of the Prince of Good Fellows. He had won, he had won the award that year. Constantly I heard people joking about age and how various people looked this or that age. My wife attended with me, and she was seated with a group of the ladies there. And when they asked why I was involved or what she was doing there, and she told them her age, they all absolutely could not believe it. One gentleman came up and said, you're too young to be married to Garner Ted. You're in your 20s. She said, you're my friend forever. <laughs> and uh, you have to be 55, by the way. My wife is not 55. She was there as a guest because I was invited, but I am a little more than 55 now. But here were people in the evening of their lives, most all of them retired, very few of them still working at all, who were trying to enjoy the remaining fleeting years that they have. I talked to a number of them. There was an Air Force general, a couple of retired Air Force colonels. There were people who had been heads of various businesses. There was a fellow who had owned a very large tool and dye shop down in Harlingen. There were people who had owned their own businesses and had sold those businesses and retired, and now they play golf. They go fishing. They go around on these senior tours and so on and just try to enjoy life as best they can. Never saw such a group as acutely aware of the passing of time, of the very temporality of our lives, of the very few years that we're able to spend on this good green earth, and how quickly it's all over. Even as we look into the universe in our own solar system, we're aware of progression. We're aware of the fact that there is all around us movement. Every day the old world rolls around one more time, and we can't stop it, we can't do anything about that. And every year, as our Earth goes around the sun, 
seasonal variations occurring as the earth gradually wobbles a little bit on its axis. And we notice the leaves beginning to turn already, and sometime, I think, the last Sunday, isn't it, of this month, they're going to go back to regular standard time, and daylight savings time will be over. I've noticed as I get up the last several mornings at about 6 o'clock that it's just black dark outside. It used to be that way only a very few months ago. So very slowly we are made aware of the progression of the seasons. Perhaps God wants us to learn something by all this, and perhaps in establishing a truly indecipherable, undiscernible, invisible, impossible to determine weekly cycle known as the Sabbath day, which pictures not only creation in the past, but also pictures the millennial reign of Christ in the future, God wants us to constantly keep in mind the progression of our own lives, the number of steps we take in this lifetime, the number of times we're on this earth as it turns, the number of journeys we make around the sun, and what it's all about, and why we're here, and what we're doing on this earth, and why we're really involved in this journey that we call life in the first place. Now, we know that the annual holy days are seasonal. They had to do with the beginning of the fall season. This is the beginning of the Jewish New Year. When you look into some of the Jewish traditional volumes, the Jewish Encyclopedia and others having to do with Jewish traditions, you become enmeshed in labyrinthal discussions of past traditions of way back in ancient times and of what was brought out of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and why they do this and that and the other thing. You have never seen such a muddled bunch of confusion as trying to decipher to what, why, what is the purpose of the observance of Rosh Hashanah or of Yom Kippur, which is the next one, the Day of Atonement, among the Jews. And it's so muddled, you really cannot come up with a clear-cut explanation as to why they do it. They don't really have the picture. They don't know what it is. So you will look in vain for a real understanding of the meaning of this day, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets by looking at a Jewish tradition or Jewish history. Let's turn to Leviticus 23, verse 24, to refresh our memories right quickly. This, of course, is the Holy Day chapter, beginning with the annual festivals, but first it even begins with the weekly Sabbath in verse 1, 2, and 3. And then says in verse 4, these are the festivals, the feasts of the eternal, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons, that is, in their progressive times, in that moment of time in the autumn or the spring when they occur. Now, over in verse 24, he says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath. Merely means a memorial occasion, an annual Sabbath in this case, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal. And he goes on in verse 26 and 7 with atonement. That's all it is said. There is nothing more said whatsoever in that chapter about the purpose or the meaning or the significance of why they should have a festival, why they should observe it as a holy day, holy time, no matter which day of the week it falls upon. Today we happen to be observing a double holy day because it is the weekly Sabbath and an annual Sabbath. But there's nothing further said there. So let's go back to one of the first places in all of the Bible where the word trumpets is used in Exodus 19 and take a look at what we can find out about trumpets. Actually, the Hebrew word which is rendered trumpet, as you know, has nothing to do with the instrument that Al Hurt plays. 
It actually means, literally, in the Hebrew language, a ram's horn, the horn that grows out of the head of a ram, which they simply knocked off and polished the end of it, perhaps even put a brass or some other part of anciently, I don't think they even added any metal to it, and that they blew out of it. It could be one that curled twice or half of a curl or whatever. You know the priests at the time of Joshua who went marching around Jericho with a ram's horn, and they blew on it seven times, and the walls fell down, as the story goes. In the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, and beginning at about verse 8, this is the proposal of the Old Covenant. God said, Will you be my people, a kingdom of priests unto me? I will be your God, if you will. I will give you rest in the land and peace and protection from your enemies and long life and good health and all these wonderful things, and proposed the greatest law that could ever be given to humankind, a law which is good for man, good for us. And the people answered together, verse 8, and said, All that the Eternal has spoken we will do. Now, God shows that the Old Covenant was like a marriage agreement. He draws the analogy that he, as the young Sutor, proposed to ancient Israel and said, I will be an husband unto them. That is actually in the Bible. I became an husband unto them, he says, by analogy, showing that it was like a marriage agreement and all that a husband was supposed to do, protect, provide, be the mentor, be the lover, be the one faithful mate and companion throughout life, God said he would do. If they, in turn, would do all that he asked them to promise. Be faithful, obey his laws, live according to his ways. They said, we'll be glad to do that. That sounds like the greatest bargain they'd ever heard. We will be happy. And so voluntarily, they all said, we will do what the Eternal said. The Eternal said unto Moses, Lo, I come to thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever, so that that manifestation would give Moses some credence. And Moses told the words of the people to the Eternal. Of the, of the people unto the eternal. The eternal then said to Moses, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Tell them to wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the eternal will come down in the sight of all of the people upon Mount Sinai. And you are to set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Be careful, take heed, that you go not to the mount or even touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through with an arrow or a spear. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet, Hebrew word shofar, meaning ram's horn, sounds long, then shall they come up to the mount. There was nothing ceremonial about it. It was a signal because it's louder and it carries further. It has a, a sharp sort of a, a metallic peel to it, you might say, which was merely a signal to begin a mass movement of people to begin to march. The trumpet then was an announcement. It was a warning. It was merely a signal to the people. And Moses went down from the mount of the people and sanctified the people. The third day, verse 16, there were lightnings and thunders, and it says, a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. But this was a trumpet that Almighty God provided, perhaps an angelic trumpet, an angelic sound. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And it said that the mountain itself looked as if it was a volcanic explosion. There was a roiling, boiling, huge black cloud ascending from it, fire surrounding its peak. And it was like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. They were experiencing an earthquake and seeing with their own eyes a great physical manifestation of God's power. 
Yet the mountain was not damaged. It was not like Mount St. Helens. It didn't blow its top. They were not in any danger of any kind of a flow of lava or descent of pumice or ash. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Eternal came down upon the top of the mount. Moses went up, and he said, Go down and charge the people lest they break through. Verse 21, I won't read the rest of that because it has to do with the introduction to the giving of God's holy law. Exodus 20, the first few verses, is introduction. Verse 3 begins with the first commandment. And after the Ten Commandments are given, the very last word, that is thy neighbors, verse 17, we read verse 18, all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the voice or the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off and said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but don't let God talk with us lest we die. Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, to test you, to try you, that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. Now, it is really quite a study in human nature to realize the tremendous thing to which those people were witnesses, and yet to realize the amount of grumbling, griping, and complaining at how quickly they would forget in a matter of days and revert into an old carnal human attitude of discontentment, of malice and of hatred, of envy, of jealousy, and begin to actually gripe against Moses, even attempt to overthrow him, begin to gripe against God. Would we be the same way today? We like to say, no, we sure wouldn't. One of the greatest arguments of all of the atheists and the agnostics is, well, if there is such a God, let him show himself. Well, I want to see this God. They're not satisfied with looking at what God has made, with trying to ask whether or not there could be a creation without a creator, or laws without a lawgiver, or design without a designer, or sustaining force like the conservation of energy without a sustainer, or whether or not all of the intricate, interdependent, symbiotic nature of our ecosystem is manageable, inventable, or in any sense sustainable without the divine hand of a great, all-wise creator God. They want to see God. They want to see him visibly and have some physical... Well, God showed physical manifestations to Israel, and it was nowhere near enough. Every day for the 40 years they were in the wilderness, by daytime there was a great cloud, and it continually was broiling, roiling, and folding itself in inactivity, almost like a small black tornado that was right over the tent or the tabernacle where the ark was kept. And by night it appeared to be a great column of flame. Forty, day, forty years, every day and every night, for forty solid years. Not a lot of people in here around forty. That's a lifetime. It's half of a human lifetime, if you live to be eighty, that they were able to see that on a daily basis. They could see it and get so accustomed to it, they could turn their back while it was right there visible and begin to gripe against Moses, who was the emissary of Almighty God. So it does make you begin to wonder, even if we were to see a black cloud upon a mountain, to feel under our own feet the earth quaking, to hear a great rumbling roar like a million locomotives going by, and knowing that though we couldn't hear words, it was the very voice of God, to see a man come striding down from a, a mountainous height whose face looked to be translucent and was glowing almost like a beautiful burnished pearl or something, 
and was so blindingly bright that they literally had to cover their faces, and the women put veils over their eyes and not look at Moses directly because he was just shining with the brilliance of millions of diamonds. They couldn't even look upon him, it said, because a little bit, apparently, of God's holiness sort of rubbed off. He was in the presence of God. He was carrying the tablets of stone that God had written with his own finger. And they said when Moses came down, his face so shone that they could not look upon him. And that still wasn't enough to keep them completely obedient and faithful. Well, in Exodus, we've covered that, the 20th chapter. Let's go to Numbers 29 and verse 1. We'll see another method that was used in the way of announcements, in the way of causing Israel to march in the wilderness. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, he talked about the blowing of trumpets. And this is, again, a repetition of what we read over in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. Let's go to Numbers, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 1. And I'll skip over Numbers 29. Numbers 10 and verse 1. This may be reminiscent to some of you who are in the military. The Eternal spoke unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver. Now, these were not the shofar, just the ram's horn, but to be made of metal. Of a whole piece you shall make them, that you may use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journey of the camp. So it was a great one-piece tube, just like some of the old ancient Roman trumpets you might have seen in a museum or perhaps in pictures, in motion pictures, where they try to reproduce that type of thing. And when they blow with them, all the assemblers shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. But if they blow with but one trumpet, that's just one long blast, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. That's officers' call. When you blow an alarm, perhaps a very rapid series of staccato blasts on those trumpets, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When you blow the alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but you shall not sound an alarm, a different type of a sound that was to be made by the trumpets. For only four years of my life, because I wasn't a long-term member of the military, I was awakened every morning by a trumpet call. I was told when to go for payday, that was a very happy sound on the trumpet, by a trumpet call. Chow call was a trumpet call. Muster, out in the assembly line, or grinders we called it, was by a trumpet call. Officer's call was by the call of a trumpet, but it was all done on record. Some real professional bugle player had gotten, you know, on the uh, record and put it either on a tape or a disc, probably a disc back in those days in the late 40s. And we would simply hear the guy put the needle on it, and you could actually hear a little bit of scratchiness. I remember now when I'm going to sleep at night, and the loudspeakers would blare all over the place. It was a very nostalgic, lonesome sound, but it actually would sort of help put you to sleep after you got used to it, you know, during four years when you heard taps which they normally now play at funerals, but it's also the evening, lights out, 10 p.m., play taps, and you hear the last waning note, and you know it's time to go to sleep. The lights are out in the, in the dormitory or the barracks, as they call them, and you can't turn the lights on again. So your entire lives are regulated by trumpet calls. To make a long story short, trumpets have always been used, way back before there was something like a microphone and an amplifier, or radios and receivers or television sets as something for a public announcement. Now, if you look into the New Testament, you can think very quickly of a lot of examples of trumpets, I'm sure. But let's go into the book of Matthew, chapter 24. And this, of course, is one of the Olivet Prophecy chapters, along with Luke 21 and Mark 13. In the 24th chapter of Matthew, after the discussion of the Great Tribulation, 
It says in verse 27, As the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, what is the lightning there? The word does not mean a lightning bolt that comes out of a cloud. It actually is the only kind of lightning that you know of that does shine or come up out of the east and shines progressively unto the west. And what is that? That is the sun. That's the sun. And actually, it does show that Jesus Christ is going to come, perhaps in one day, and it may actually require a full day, so that as the earth turns, and what appears to be a thousand times brighter than Halley's Comet is coming closer and closer to the earth, every human being on earth, except those who cannot look on the face of God and will not, and those who are saying, fall upon us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and so on, and people in the holes of ships and down inside dungeons and buildings and basements and indoors. But, I mean, if people could look up and see it, they will be able to see it, and all of mankind will be shocked. Verse 28, Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Perhaps a brief explanation of that. There's a different uh, rendering of that uh, in a different version of the Gospels, but literally it does mean wherever the body is, there will the birds of carrion be. So, by analogy, he is saying what? He is saying... Christ is coming for you. Let me go back a couple of verses to that and prove it uh, to you. In verse 25, Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert. Now, there are people who would say that to you today. There are religions, one in particular of whom you know, I'm sure, that say Christ is already here, but he's hiding out somewhere. He's incognito. He's in a secret place. Or we don't know who he is. He might be among us somewhere. There are people who believe all sorts of fables like this. So Christ is warning us and saying that that would occur. Wherefore, if they shall say, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Or, behold, he is in the secret chambers. Don't you believe it? For he's coming visibly. And then he says, in the same context, having to do with don't believe fables about a secret coming, Christ is coming so that you will see him, Christ is coming to whom and for whom? Well, to and for his saints, for his church. He is the bridegroom who is coming to wed his church. He is the Savior who is coming to catch up and to change instantaneously into very God life the seed that has been generated by God the Father through repentance, baptism, laying on of hands, and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit so that all the little babies, so to speak, spiritually, who are to become members of God's great family, are to be caught up together with Christ in the air, to descend with him in that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, and actually come back down and begin to rule the world. Is Christ going to come somewhere else where his own disciples, the innermost cadre of his own select, elected group, would be the last to know about it? That's what this analogy is all about. So he uses an analogy that is merely a farmer's story. Any sheep man or cattle man who counts the head when they come into the sheepfold and knows that one of them is missing would get on his horse and he would go out into the, the terrain out there, out maybe in western Colorado that I think of because Walt Curtis's old sheep ranch up there, and he's looking for his lost sheep. Well, way over there in the horizon he sees some black specks whirling around. He says, well, that's not the place to look, is it? Well, he'd be the stupidest man in the world. It's the most obvious place to look, because wherever the body of the sheep is, there will the eagles be gathered together, right? 
So he goes straight over there because he thinks, uh-oh, my poor sheep fell, broke its leg, or a coyote or wolves got it, and the carcass is over there. Christ is not using some macabre example. He's merely trying to impress upon his disciples where the body is, meaning the body of the church. There will the eagles be gathered together, meaning there is where I'm coming. I'm coming to receive my own body, the body of the church, unto myself. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all of the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. I'm finishing a book right now, my next to the last chapter, having to do with a structure of the chapter, uh, by chapter structure, I should say, relating to the Lord's Prayer. So each line of the Lord's Prayer is one chapter, although they're introductory and then concluding chapters after that. And it's been picked up by Medallion Publishing in Los Angeles, and hopefully by January it will be available generally to the general population. I hope so. And the title of it is a little bit similar, although I think they may want to shorten it down because one of their editors, Andrew Edinger, is talking about possibly shortening the title. The title that I gave them is simply like one of my booklets, Oh God, Where Are You When I Need You? Or The Answer to Unanswered Prayer. When I get to the part where in the Lord's Prayer it says, For thine is the glory forever. Amen. I take great issue with the way a lot of churches in this world talk about glory. And I'm reminded of the time when Buck Hammer and David John Hill were baptizing an elderly black lady down in Louisiana somewhere. And her husband, who knew nothing about this apparently, she had contacted the church and we sent out baptizing tours and they'd driven down there. I don't know now if it was in Texas, maybe one of these muddy farm ponds, but the story was that they were out in the back of this farm and this lady was there, and they were standing about hip deep out in this farm pond. And here came a pickup, just spewing dust and gravel. A man was very agitated, very exercised, skids to a stop, and grabs his shotgun, and wonders if somebody is out there trying to manhandle his poor wife and drown her in the pond. He hadn't been forewarned that she was going to be baptized that day. So he said, are you all right? Whatever her name was. She says, oh, yes, these men is from the world tomorrow, and I is in my glory. Now, have you ever heard people talk about being in their glory? You know the way the Baptists say it? The Baptists, you know, get very, very emotional about religious, and they will say, glory. You ever heard, have you ever in your life ever heard someone talk like that? Say, Glory. They're in some kind of an evangelistic meeting, you know, and they get going. Somebody says, glory. Say glory. They all say glory. And they, it's G-L-O-W-R-E-Y. Glory, you know, glory. And to me, that takes what the Bible is saying about the glory of God and just kind of rubs it in the dirt. I've often thought that if there were far more uh, diamonds than there are just plain old pebbles along the roadside, that we'd be wearing pebble rings. We'd be very, very tired of diamonds. But when you read in the book of Revelation about the splendor, what are some of the analogies, or rather some of the uh, synonyms you might think of for the word glory? Well, magnificent, beautiful, splendiferous, or splendid, fine, uh, what, radiant, uh, effervescent, bright, shiny, uh, colorful, 
all sorts of analogies or similes that you might come up with that have to do with what is the glory of God. I find it quite touching that in the final prayer that we, den we tend to go over in the 14th through the 17th chapters of John on the Passover ceremony, that is the real Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that he prayed, that he said to his father that he hoped that he would be able to show his disciples his glory. Now, that's fascinating. As a little child, when you accomplish something really great, you want your father and your mother to look. I remember being frustrated when I first learned how to swim, and my mom and dad were visiting at my uncle's place, and I'd learned how to swim while they were gone. And I could swim now and dive through a rubber inner tube and everything, and I'm piping my little boy's chirping voice, look, daddy, look, mother, and I'm diving off this raft through this inner tube, and I'm trying to show them the great thing that I can do. I can swim. I couldn't swim when they left, now I can swim. My mother told me, never go near the water until you learn how to swim. And uh, thankfully, she was not there while I went near the water before I knew how to swim. Matter of fact, I think if I remember, I was thrown off the raft one time, and I did swim. I was afraid I wasn't sure I could swim, but I could, all right. So I'm saying, look, Daddy, look. I wanted to show what I was able to accomplish. Now, if you're able to accomplish something really great, if you're really a great athlete, you really enjoy doing it all by yourself, don't you? It doesn't turn you on at all to be in front of a great big crowd, 50,000 strong, in a huge indoor gymnasium in the state championship, does it? Well, we all know better. I mean, it's a fantastic hype, a fantastic turn-on for someone who has accomplished in this or that or the other thing that they've been able to, to achieve, to be able to share that, to give that, even to perhaps, if ego and vanity gets involved, to show it off. Now, this is not what Christ had in mind. But if you paint a beautiful painting, it's always nice to show it to someone. If you cook a delicious meal, that's why they have pie-baking contests in state fairs, it's nice to let people know that you're able to do that. If you are able to do anything that shows talent or ingenuity or creativity or ability, accomplishment, then you like to be able to display it and to show it. It's interesting, I find it quite touching, that Jesus Christ prayed to his Father that he would lose none of his disciples, that they would be inducted into the kingdom of God, he said, that they may behold my glory. What is touching to me about the song that Becky played for us, have you ever heard that? Some of you may have heard it, some may not have. We shall behold him face to face. It reaches one crescendo after another until it's just all you can stand. It's a very, very moving song. And it's taken from 1 John 3 and verse 1. No man can look upon God and live. And so the almost semi-presumptuousness and yet the promise of Almighty God that we shall behold him. Now, in our state, we would look into his eyes and die. We'd shrivel up and all of our flesh would melt off our bones. We'd be dead because you can't look upon his what? His magnificent glory and live because we're so cruddy and so human and so filthy in comparison to God. Now, to me, for someone to take the word glory and go prating around glory like that, it just takes something that is so magnificent and just tramples it into the dust. And in my next to the last chapter in the book, I intend to show the magnificent view of the throne of Almighty God in heaven above, a little bit of the radiance, the brilliance, the ebullience, the effervescence, the absolute many-hued, uh, multicolored, rainbow-like beauty that surrounds God's throne.
And what you really should have in mind when you say, For thine is the, uh, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because it's not something that is really passed over very lightly in the Bible. It's something that is very, very important. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. They shall see, verse 30, the latter part, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. The power of billions of hydrogen bombs, the power of the sun, the power of the universe. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, obviously, then, the great trumpet that is going to sound is the signal for the dead. It's going to be so loud, if you could say this by analogy, that the dead are going to hear it, and the dead are going to rise from their graves, and those who are living are going to be changed instantaneously and rise to meet Christ in the air at the last trump. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 and take another quick look at that. The resurrection chapter, which basically says the same thing. As we have borne, verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die. We will not all sleep. My father died last January 16th. My mother died in 1967. My brother Dick died in 1958. And they're all buried there, side by side, within probably about six or eight feet of each other, in a cemetery that I know of up above Pasadena in Altadena. All of you have many, many friends. When I walked by, I looked at a whole gallery of photographs of the heads of this particular lodge. One of them, I looked 27, 28, and I thought, I want to look at the man who was here when I was born. So I looked at 30, and then 31, 32, and I was thinking, nice-looking men, and I'm sure men of certain status and stature in the community, all dead now. All absolutely gone, long ago. They were mature men up in their 60s in 1927, 28, 29. Take a look and you see what I mean in the hallway, outside, on your way out. Men of accomplishment, men of dignity, men of ability, men who were part of an organization that does very laudatory things, such as the Free Burn Center for children down here at, uh, in South Texas on the Gulf. I think in, uh, not, uh, yeah, in Galveston, isn't it? It's in Galveston, I think, is a very important national burn center that has operated fabulous facility that doesn't cost a dime. And one of my little nieces was horribly burnt, and they put her in an ambulance, took her all the way down there. She's had all kinds of operations and skin grafts. Can you imagine what that would cost in a hospital? Can you imagine what an ambulance ride from here to Galveston and back would cost you? Not one dime did they charge that family. That's what happens in that burn center for children. It's one thing that this organization that owns this hall accomplishes. So those men are all dead, just like so many millions of others, awaiting a great general resurrection, which is going to come. He goes on to say, This I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all die, not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, Paul had to revise his opinion later. He then was still thinking, obviously so, that he would be alive and remain under the coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. My father thought the same thing. He told the church that for many years. Many people told me that. They thought that. My father is gone. They've had to revise their thinking. My father was not going to be around until the second coming of Christ at all. I believe that this living generation will be 
because I simply cannot see in the world, especially with global conditions the way they are, another generation, another lifetime to where I get to be 93 and so on, and then I am gathered unto my fathers as an old, old man, and still the world is going on. It just seems impossible, even by looking at the Club of Rome and other statistical evidence, that this world could last in any sort of equilibrium beyond the turn of the century. He goes on to say, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as quickly as you can blink, which is so quick you can't even see it sometimes, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, some other information on the trumpets. Let's go to Isaiah, the 58th chapter, and take a look at how this festival may also, in some shadowy manner, relate to the work that God is doing on this earth today. He says to his prophets in chapter 58, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Now, it's merely an analogy because it means to get attention. It means stridently. It means repeatedly. It means excitedly. It means loudly and clearly. As it says in 1 Corinthians 14, the apostle Paul said in the verse 8, I think, of that chapter, If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall go forth to battle? It cannot give an uncertain sound. So the work of witness and warning is likened unto lifting your voice up like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter. Let's take a look at that right quickly. Ezekiel 33. We know this chapter fairly thoroughly because it has to do with the watchman. And I have a booklet entitled, The Work of the Watchman, that characterizes the work that God is doing in the light of the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. Verse 2, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and trouble is coming for the United States and all of our peoples, that is merely a symbol of warfare eventually, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, then they lived in towered or walled villages, they would have a tower, a man would look over the far horizon and would have a shofar in his hand. If he saw an approaching army, a dust cloud, and began to identify it as an enemy, then he would blast on the shofar and people could come running to their defensive positions. If when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and doesn't take warning ignores it, his blood's on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman sees the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. And similar phrases repeated in this chapter dealing with the watchman, which is the work of God, of witness and warning. Now, I want to give you an analogy right quickly so you can understand something about the calling that Almighty God has given us and whether or not we do take it seriously. We know that the annual Holy Day show through the Passover the atonement of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the acceptance of Christ as Savior. And we know as we progress through the year, we come to Pentecost after the Days of Unleavened Bread, which shows receiving and imbibing and eating the bread which is Christ, as well as living a life of coming out of sin. Actually, that aspect of the Days of Unleavened Bread has been, by the parent organization, emphasized on the negative rather than the positive. Why, I ask you this question, just in retrospect, thinking for a moment about the Days of Unleavened Bread, 
did Israel wander in what was deliberately called by Almighty God the wilderness of sin. Mount Sinai, Sinai was the most prominent peak in a wilderness called Sin, S-I-N. And the Israelites wandered in the midst of sin, but they were God's special people. And so what you really have is the picture of God's church surrounded by, in the midst of, sin for all of our lifetime, which is the 40 years of trial of wandering in the wilderness. The River Jordan was a symbol of entering into God's promised land or the kingdom of God. And when they passed over the river and entered into the promised land, it's just like being inducted into the family of God or the kingdom of God, like receiving salvation at the second coming of Christ. Everything that leads up to that time is in this life here and now. When he says, thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, and Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Then the picture of receiving Christ comes clear by the days of unleavened bread. The Passover pictures accepting Christ. The days of unleavened bread picture receiving, imbibing, taking in of Jesus Christ. Pentecost pictures the fact that we are the first fruits, that God is not trying to set his hand to save the entire world now, but later on. Now we come to trumpets, which is the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, but also the culmination of this life of all we are to do as a church leading up toward the ultimate great trumpet blast, that final great trump, and the second coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, my question to us today is, as the seasons come and go, as one feast of trumpets comes and goes, as one feast of tabernacles comes and goes, and another one is almost upon us in a matter of a very few more days now, just barely less than two weeks, and we will be, God willing, all of us safely arriving there at one of the various festival sites. I'll have to count up, because I remember my father and mother keeping the Feast of Tabernacles when I was a little boy in Eugene, Oregon, out on West 6th Street. I remember when in the entirety of the world, so far as anyone knew, there were less than 100 people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. I remember in my naval uniform, actually hitchhiking all the way to Eugene, Oregon, going up into Belknap Springs and being there for a day or two just to visit the family and see my brother Dick, my mom and my mother, I should say my mother and my father and some of my other relatives and so on, at the Feast of Tabernacles in 1949, just before I went overseas in an aircraft carrier. So I also remember the very first feast when I sang some special music, and I was there, but I wasn't a part of the church, very much not a part of the church at that time, and, and got into some problems because of it. As a boy, just barely out of the Navy, well, as a young man, I was 22, but I thought I was quite much older than I really was, at that time, in 1952, at Siegler Springs. How many of you were at Siegler Springs in 1952? Anyone? You were a little girl. My wife was. She was a little girl, I know, because, uh, matter of fact, I took her dancing with my brother-in-law and sister and uh, Lloyd Goldson, I think, and some other people, and uh, my brother Dick dated her, and I dated her. We were beginning to date a little bit at the feast at that time. I'll have to count up how many feasts of tabernacles this will be for me. I can tell you how many in the church, but I'm talking about the ones that I've either been to or seen or known about. And I remember then we came over in 1953 and had 1,200 people, 400 in Siegler Springs, 1,200 in Big Sandy. The very next year, about, I think, something like 3,400. The next year, probably over 4,500 or so, and then 6,000, 8,000. I mean, it just was growing, growing, growing. Until now, the Feast of Tabernacles is observed by tens of thousands of people all over the world, in countries even behind the Iron Curtain, all over Western Europe, 
in New Zealand, South Africa, in other nations in Africa, and uh, in Poland, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, in East and West Germany, in Scandinavia, in the islands of the Pacific, out in Fiji, in Samoa, and uh, people all around the world are observing a feast. Well, a lot of those years have gone by very, very rapidly to me. My analogy is simply this. Do you know the difference between a professional and an amateur? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews right quickly for my analogy. I think we all know, especially if we apply that to sports, we know exactly what is the difference between a pro and an amateur. It says in verse 12 of the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews, For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers, you ought to be really professionals, you ought to be able to educate someone else, you have need, Paul wrote to these people, this does not necessarily apply to all of us, but let's drink in and get what we can out of it, and if the shoe fits, let's wear it. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, meaning they develop character, which is the discernment between good and evil, and the power to force oneself to have the willpower to choose the good over the evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto full growth, as it says in a margin, perfection, maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands and a resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Let me tell you a little bit about the difference between a professional golfer and an amateur golfer. I am an amateur golfer. A lot of us, if we were in this or that or the other sport, would say that we're an amateur basketball player, an amateur football player, an amateur whatever. An amateur continually experiments. He gets out on the course, he says, keep your head still, check your stance, oh, get the left foot back, watch the grip, think to curl under with these two fingers, bring it back slow, all the way to the top, move the body forward just a little bit on the downswing. He's thinking so many hundreds of things on a golf swing that he's absolutely sure he's going to hook, top, cudgel, slice, shank, drub, hit the top third, chili dip, miss the ball entirely, do something absolutely horrible to the golf ball. You'd be amazed. You think you can go and hit a golf ball without ever trying? I thought when I was 16 years of age, I'd get up to a golf ball, that little bitty defenseless thing only that big around, me with a club with a big old head on it like that, well, I was going to hit that thing at least a thousand yards. And I wound up, put that thing on a tee, and with a mighty swing, and I looked, and the ball was still sitting there on the tee, right where it was. The first three or four or five times I ever swung at a golf ball in my life, I couldn't even hit it. And you talk about frustrating. That absolutely just frustrates you to death, to whiff a shot. Now, I haven't done that in many, many years, but I've done, I've really hit some bad shots, I'll guarantee you that. Professional? Well, long ago, he grooved his swing to where everything is automatic. It's just automatic. He's not picking apart his golf swing anymore. He just got one simple little thing, like Arnold Palmer once said, that his entire mental key is simply swing the handle. Now, I've tried to use that. That says to me, cancel out the club face, don't worry about anything else. You just got a handle, forget the club face, don't try to steer the ball or be cute with it, but just 
swing the handle. And that's helped my golf game to take all these dozens of things, simplify them, and print one little mental picture in your mind and try to groove everything so it just becomes automatic. Basketball, football, any other profession. You will see ads on television about moving vans. We are the professionals. You know the difference between professional and an amateur? For example, the word profession can mean the opposite of confession. A confession is to admit guilt, to confess. We know pro and con. And it's, it seems strange that pro sometimes means for and other times against. But that's the vagaries of the English language. A profession can also be your business. But originally it was something which was vocal. It's what you attest to. It's what you witness to. I profess that I am a carpenter. My profession, by profession, by admission to you, by my attestation to you, I'm a carpenter. Gradually the usage of the English word has come down to us, meaning literally expert, right? If somebody is a professional, he's an expert. He's good at it, but something else. He's also paid for it. He's paid for it. The difference between a pro and an amateur is an amateur can go out in the golf course or he can get out in the basketball court or the tennis court or the football field. For what purpose? Can you think of the purposes that you would do something like that? Well, recreation, sure. Exercise, to have fun, participate in group sports, and receive the benefit of good health. And maybe a little bit of ego because everybody likes to show off a little bit if they are proficient. They can have all of those various motives. The difference between a professional and an amateur is that the amateur only gets that out of it. When the game is over, he's got his sweat, he's had his fun, he's on his way home to do something else again. But the professional, oh, he gets all of those things too. He still has fun, he still gets the exercise, he still gets the group sports, he gets the ego massage. And he gets money. He gets paid. Now, what makes him a professional? Well, the difference is he has a contract. He is required to perform or he gets fired, doesn't he? And he doesn't play for the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Giants or somebody else. He doesn't get on the tennis circuit. He doesn't remain in the PGA. He doesn't qualify in the qualifying round of the Kemper Open because he hasn't fulfilled the terms and commitments of his contract, and oftentimes professional golfers, believe it or not, you may not know this, have sponsors. They have people who will get together to actually sponsor them on the tour, maybe even friends or their father, a couple of uncles, maybe businessmen in the community, who will put up the money for their hotel, their meals, their travel, and all of that, and the entry fee into various events, and they will then gradually become a professional, begin to earn money to pay those people back. Are we just waiting it out? Are we amateur theologians? Are we amateur Christians? Is Christianity and this church a part-time hobby of ours, or is it our profession? Have we a contract with God? Have we set our hand to, uh, to, to perform, to achieve a certain level of performance that Almighty God demands of us? knowing that if we do not achieve that level, Almighty God says, contract canceled, you're out, go back to amateur status. That's what Paul is saying here. For the time when we should have become professionals, able to actually evangelize, to teach others, 
to be able to give an answer for the hope for the faith that is within us. We are still, he says, amateurs dealing with these principles. And how often I have seen that. I've used that without doing it in this analogy of people who pick their faith apart. They continually pick at the doctrines. They can't leave them alone. The doctrines of God's church, of the Sabbath, of the annual holy days, which portray, after all, the very purpose and the plan of God, are still under attack by sometimes individuals inside the church. That's exactly like a fellow like Bob Love III or whoever you want to talk about, Payne Stewart or somebody else out here on the golf circuit, who suddenly just gets a case of the yips so bad that he can't putt and he's whiffing balls and just becomes a complete basket case and falls apart on the golf course. Who suddenly, instead of forgetting that his swing is so grooved and everything is so natural, he's a professional, he really knows his stuff. When you see him perform, you're looking at one of the smoothest, beautiful golf swings that there is. All of a sudden, he looks like a spastic, looks like a graduate of St. Vitus College, who might have even gone to Professor Parkinson's class and majored in dance to make it worse. He just looks terrible, like a poor spastic on the golf course. Why? Because he's begun to pick his golf swing apart. When I see people at this late date, I call it the late date because, of course, for me, 31 years later after being ordained, it's quite a late date to deal with things that I proved and demonstrated to thousands of students in classes years and years and years ago. Going back to go through, for example, things such as the annual holy days, tithing, clean and unclean meats, the obligation that Almighty God lays upon me as a Christian, which are foundational principles such as being here today as we all are, participating in this offering, which I know we all did, doing the things that Almighty God tells us to do automatically because we are professionals and we're professing a good fight. Now, another way of looking at it is the Apostle Paul gives the analogy of being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you, a soldier is a professional. There is no such thing as a person who gets inducted into Uncle Sam's army or the Marine Corps, or the Navy, the Air Force, who is an amateur because by the time they get out of boot camp or their primary training, and a Marine Corps DI drills instructor or someone else has actually made them, molded them, shaped them into a military man instead of a civilian, they now understand heavy and light weapons and they are a professional killer because they know how to be a professional fighting man. So the question I leave you with on this Feast of Trumpets is, are you a professional? Are you progressing? Are you performing as Almighty God expects you to perform? When it comes time that something nettles you, bothers you, upsets you, are you still as susceptible as an amateur? Can you get emotionally distraught and upset? Can you get hurt feelings? I know of people in cases, for example, where little church groups would come together and meet in the very earliest fledgling moments of the Church of God International as a host. And here's the fellow, bless his heart, God love him, God bless him, tell those good things about him. There may be dozens of them, and I can think of four or five or six real quick without even taxing my memory at all. But eventually, we were able to provide a minister. And this has happened time and time and time again. You know where I'm going with it? Sure you do. You know where I'm going, don't you? The poor fellow was a nice man, a nice guy, a good guy, a good family, a generous man, opened up his home. People came to his home, sat there, turned on the tape recorder, 
had cookies and coffee and soft drinks and chatted and talked. But eventually, a minister is provided. Maybe he moves into the area. Maybe somebody was ordained. Maybe a man from a distant city is able to travel down there. So the church begins to worry and become, not worry, but I mean wonder about becoming a chartered church. All of a sudden, this poor guy is upset. He's just distraught. He's beside himself. Why? Do you understand it? I understand it. Everybody understands it. God understands it. The only person who doesn't is the poor man who is distraught. He wanted so bad to be in a position of leadership and wasn't qualified, wasn't called, shouldn't have been, just a nice guy. But it's happened not once, not twice, not five times, but ten times, twelve times, twenty times in cases here and there around the country. And it's very, very sad. What about something that comes along to hurt you? Where is your ego bruisable? How easily can your ego be stepped upon? Are you a pro? Can you take the kicks and the cuts and the bruises and get up and say, hey, that's my job? Or are you a blubbering amateur who every time somebody steps on you, you pick apart your entire Christian structure and wail and weep and feel like you're a little child, very heavily abused and much put upon? I think as these days go by and the seasonal changes and the annual holy days of God that progressively tell us nothing stands still. Everything moves. The world moves. Our lives continue to ebb and wane away. It's time we looked at whether or not we are really pros at this business of Christianity.